Amen. All right. Tonight, as I mentioned, we're in Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 9. And we're going to go ahead and finish this chapter out tonight. And the title is The Final Destination, New Jerusalem. That's what we're going to be seeing. And, and, and speaking of that idea of final destination, it's funny that in this life, you may agree with me on this, in this life, we look forward, sometimes we look forward, oftentimes we look forward to a, a destination or an event in the future, and we can't wait, and we're counting down the, the days, and just such anticipation, cannot wait to get there, and then we get there, and guess what? not fulfilling it doesn't satisfy it's kind of a letdown we think wow what in the world so this is the grand canyon i'm just kidding <laughs> that's a pretty good one but i'm just saying sometimes we get there we think this is it and and because of that we've kind of developed this other phrase maybe you've heard this the journey is the destination you heard anybody say that the journey is the destination well that's kind of a human response to the idea that we're always disappointed right we we look for a destination we look for some goal we can't wait for that day to come we finally arrive, and it just doesn't measure up. It just doesn't fulfill. So we have to say, well, you know what? It's the, destiny. It's, it's the journey. Right? It's the journey that's, that's important. That's, that's the destination. And, and yet, Revelation 21 makes it clear that our final destination is much better than the journey, without a doubt. And this is what is so encouraging about God's word. Knowing this truth, knowing this truth, causes us to press on through the pain, through the suffering, through the disappointments and the letdowns of this world. Even, if the, even though the journey is like impossible sometimes, knowing that the destination, without a question, will be far greater than anything we can imagine, will give us the perseverance to push on. That's exactly what Abraham did, right? Abraham. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, showing us all of these Old Testament saints that by faith believed God in the midst of inconceivable odds against them i mean he persevered in faith because he understood that the journey was leading him to an eternal destination that would completely satisfy him it wouldn't just be a partial okay this is cool no it will completely satisfy him and more it will overwhelm him he knew that he believed that by faith as a matter of fact that's what hebrews 11 8 9 say by faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out, of, out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So again, there's the faith. God called him and said, I want you to go this direction. And he did. He left his home and his family and everything he knew. And he went that away. <laughs> but he didn't know where he was going. But by faith, it says, he went to live in the land of promise, the land that God had promised. He said, go this way. I promise you, keep going that way. And he didn't. He lived as a, basically a vagabond, just traveling and going and following the Lord. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But he never saw it. He never saw the final promise. He was living as a stranger in all of these lands that he traveled, yet never receiving the promise. But he believed, and he persevered in spite of it. And Isaac and, and Jacob, he saw their births, but he never saw this promise fulfilled of this great inheritance that would outnumber the stars of the heavens and the sands of the earth. 
And yet Hebrews 11.10 says this. Here's why he did it. Here's what caused him to persevere in the midst of what we, we would say is just a disappointing uh, life. And this, 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 this senile old fellow roaming the desert for all of these years, mumbling something about a promise, <laughs> people would look and say, well, that's a three-defeated fellow there. Poor guy, right? And yet here's what he saw. For he was looking forward beyond I think it's important that we grab the sense of this word here. He's looking past all of that, this earthly disappointment. He, looked, he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's why he persevered in the midst of pain and, and the disappointment over and over again, because he was looking past all this to a building or a city that had foundation. There was a foundation of his faith. God promised he believed, and there was solid foundation as far as he was concerned because the builder of that city is none other than God. The designer of that city is God. And so we're going to see tonight that, that city with foundations. I mean, there's no the Bible is consistent throughout. This city in Revelation also mentions the foundations and that the builder is God. Now, for, for Abraham, beginning in Genesis 15, God promised him that he would have a vast multitude, a mass multitude of spiritual offspring. I mean, as, as vast as the heavens, as vast as the stars. And yet he never saw it. The promise also said this, not only will you have this great multitude of children and offspring, but they will have a safe place to live and not only will it just be a safe place to live, it will be with me forever. That was the promise. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. That's the promise. And basically, chapter 21 reveals this coming reality. Everything that Abraham was looking for ends in Revelation chapter 21 as it is revealed. So this is glorious for us tonight because we are the offspring of Abraham. Okay, this is the, we're going to see some of this tonight, make these connections. But by faith, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him is righteousness. Therefore, what did that mean? It means he received the covenant promises. They were given to him. He, the inheritance was his. And then, of course, in Romans, we've learned, as Paul says, we are recipients of that same covenant by faith, just like Abraham. So all of those who trust God by faith are Abraham's seed, promised seed. So let's notice our inheritance today. Let's notice what we're looking for here in, in verse uh, or chapter 21 now last time we saw in verses 2 and 3 the introduction of this new city okay and i just want to kind of read those two verses to kind of tee up the ball for us to hit out of the park today by by revelation chapter 21 verses 9 through, through uh, 27 but notice what it said and i saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down out of heaven from god prepared as a bride adorned for her husband and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. So again, just over and over, this reassurance of our position throughout eternity. We're with God, he's with us, he's with us, we're with him. It just continues to, to repeat itself there. The dwelling place is with God. God will be with us. He himself will be their God. And they will be his people. Now, that city, which here it says it's the city that is a, it's, it's, 
it's adorned as a bride. And a lot of times we're going to look at this as we see interpreters look at these words, the bride and the city, and they'll try to say, well, the bride and the city are the same thing, or the city is the bride. And I'll talk about kind of what I think there. End of the, end of the day, they're both pointing toward us and our future, so that's the truth. But notice the bride and the new city mentioned in verses 9 and 10 now. It's, what we're going to do now is zoom in on what those two verses said. We're going to zoom in on that new city, on that new Jerusalem, and see some more things about it. Verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me. He said, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain, and showed me the holy city. Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. So again, we have these two metaphors. That, that one is used at the beginning of that, that, that passage, and then it's dropped and never mentioned again until later in, in chapter 22. So, so it moves to a, a city metaphor, right? It mentions the bride, and then when you think you're going to see a bride, it says, here's a city. <laughs> so what is that all about? Well, first of all, I want to compare verse 17:1, the beginning, with, I'm sorry, uh, Verse 21, 9, with Revelation 17, 1. I think it's important because it's, it, verse 17, 1 basically says this. Then, on the seven, th then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. So back in chapter 17, we have this same angel. It's the same one introduced here in verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls. It's the same angel. But in that chapter... He introduced the great prostitute, the one who had caused the nations to fall into immorality. He talks about her judgment back in chapter 17, but compare that and contrast that with today, this glorious revelation. Now let me show you the opposite of the great prostitute. Let me show you the bride of Christ in all of her glory and splendor. So that, that's important for us to see that contrast. Then, I think the main purpose in these metaphors, as I mentioned, what does that mean? Does it mean that the bride and the, the city are the same thing? Does it mean the city is like where the bride's going to live? Is the bride us? Or is the church the city? There's a, there's a lot of, of commentaries that will go page after page about that, but I think this is the main way to dilute this for us, or to, to distill it rather, not dilute, distill this down for us. I think the main purpose in these two symbols is to demonstrate that God and his people will dwell together forever. So either way, whether it's the city is God's people and he's in the city, or if we are the bride dwelling in the city and God is dwelling in the city with us, same outcome, correct? God's people dwell with God for eternity. That's the main thing that we need to grab from this, these, these symbols. Now notice something else about that verse I want to catch real quick over here, and that is it said that the city was coming down out of heaven from God. I think it highlights the fact that this new city is the result of God's work, not man's work. Human Christians on earth are not somehow conjuring up a new kingdom. We're not somehow uh, making this world such a glorified place that God, when he comes, he comes to a kingdom that we've made. I, I think it's very plain here. This new city, this new uh, world comes from God. This new kingdom that we will live in, it's the work of God by his grace, and it's a gift for all of his people. He 
brings the new city, not us. We faithfully live in this old world. We, we try our best to influence this world, to become more like the kingdom of God. We pray his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But in the end, we're not the ones that are going to make this world a perfect place. It's going to be God bringing his new city. And that's what we're looking for, right? Now look at this. As we look at this city, it says this. It's radiant. Notice the radiance of this city in verse 11. Having the glory of God. This city that came down, it says, having the glory of God, it's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. So this is, this is significant. That, that gem that was used to, to demonstrate what this city looks like is a jasper. Now jasper was used back in Revelation 4, 2 and 3 when we first saw God on his throne. And what does it say? Look at this. At once I was in the spirit, John said, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of a jasper. He had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, again, all of these are simply depictions. John's doing his best to describe what he's seeing. We have to understand, again, John's using, using human language to, dis and it's, by the way, finite human language to describe infinite beauty, infinite light, infinite grandeur, and, and, and we can't even begin to describe it. So he did the best he could, but basically what he's showing is there is this great glory just radiating from the throne of God himself. And how do you describe that in human terms? So that's the main thing. But he used Jasper first of all there. The first thing is he was as Jasper. Now again, we just saw in Revelation verse 11, this city has the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a Jasper. Now what does that mean? It's Jasper, I believe, is a picture of the glory of God. And that's really what this city is. This city radiates with the very supernatural glory of God that we can't even describe with human, human terms. And now, look what he goes on to say about this city. Verse 12 and 14, about the walls that surround this city. Verse 12, it had a great wall. High, a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed on the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. So we had the square, right? And each side of this gate, this wall had gates, okay? Three gates on each side. And the wall of the city had, had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So there's a lot of things we've already covered in Revelation. I hope it's being, you know, brought back into your memory. I hope we're rem reminding ourselves of this. The number 12 and 12 equals 24. 12 plus 12 is 24. The 24 elders that we saw around the throne of God, we said even back then that represents the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 uh, apostles in the New Testament, bringing together the Old and New Testament saints, showing again this continuity of all of God's people gathered around the throne. So the 12 gates, having the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 foundations 
are the 12 apostles. Now, just for our, our own sake here, it sounds kind of weird to hear that a, that, a fa- that a building has 12 foundations, right? When you first think of that, like, what is that 12 foundations? Like 12 stories deep? Like here's a foundation, here's a foundation, here's a foundation, and it just keeps going. I think it coincides with the gates. I think the idea is each gate had a foundation. You had each gate, which had the name of one of the 12 tribes, and then each gate had a foundation, which was the name of each apostle, which again gives great continuity showing again this connection between the Old Testament saints represented by the 12 tribes and the New Testament saints represented by the apostles who were the foundation that was built upon, right? The whole, the whole Christendom came from the 12 apostles in the New Testament. And I think it's important, too, to think about this, that, that, that this, this is a picture of gospel continuity, of faith. Think about this. The Old Testament saints, represented again by the 12 tribes, how did they receive God's promise? They received it by faith, correct? They believed the promise of a coming Messiah. So they received the promise of the Messiah by faith. The New Testament apostles, or the New Testament believers, signified by the 12 apostles, received the Messiah by faith as well. So I think the, beauty, the beautiful thing here that kind of gives continuity is this, that the gate, the gate to enter into the city has always been the same. It's faith in the Messiah. Whether it's the Old Testament saints or the New Testament saints, Jesus is the door, he said, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by and through me. So I just think it's a beautiful picture here that these gates <laughs> with the apostles as the foundation and the gates, which are the entryway into the city, is a picture of faith in Christ, I believe. It's just, it, we, that's the only thing, that, that's the only entry into that gate. Romans 4.16, listen to this. This is why the promise is by faith. So Paul follows up with this, I believe, in his great thesis in Romans, which says what? That we're justified not by works, but by faith. Why? Because he says right here, this is why the promise, the covenant promise is by faith, so that it may be according to grace, to guarantee it to all the descendants, not only to the one who is of the law, which is your practical Jew, right, the, 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 the Jew proper, but also, he says, to the one who is of Abraham's faith, or literally the one who believed just like Abraham believed. That's us Gentiles. We, we, we weren't raised under the law like a Jew was. We also, though, have access to this covenant, this covenantal promise that was given to Abraham on the grounds, the same grounds that Abraham received, it, and that is by faith. So that's, that, again, is a beautiful picture here, I think, of Old Testament, New Testament coming in the door. How do you enter the door of the city? It's by faith in Christ. We're going to talk some more about those gates in a minute that will kind of bring that back to us about the Messiah himself. But notice these measurements now of the city. This is where it gets a little interesting. Are you ready for this? All right, here we go. Wow, Josh, I, he is ready. I heard him. He's like, yeah, let's do this. So verse 15 and 16 says this. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. By the way, I am going to say, based on the trouble that John is going to to describe this city, I think it's more substantial than just a metaphor of all of God's people. I think there is going to be, what the Bible is trying to show us, is heaven is not ethereal where we're floating around 
in strange dimensions and not really there. It's physical. There is a literal place that God is preparing for us to worship him, for us to be with him, for us to gather. And so I, I think, again, we're, we're seeing this place. But notice this. Now, again, is it as literal as we're about to see? I don't know. But look at this. And the one who spoke had a gold measuring uh, stick. I, I added that. I didn't say measuring stick. Okay, here we go. And let me read it slowly. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. So what did we describe there? We're describing a perfect cube. Four squares, right? And it's the same length, the same width, and height. Twelve sides, right? Twelve corners to that thing. And look at this. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Now, what is that? And again, by the way, he reminds us again that the length and the width and the height are equal. So this is a perfect cube, okay? Three-dimensional, <laughs> if you will. So what is 12,000? By the way, here we got the number 12 again, right? We just saw 12 Old Testament tribes, 12 apostles. Now we got this measurement, and it's using this symbolic but important language, 12,000. That's about 1,500 miles. <laughs> it's a, that's, that's equal to 1,500 miles. So you've got this city, perfect cube, 1,500 miles long, 1,500 miles wide, 1,500 miles high. A lot of room, really. I know it's hard to comprehend this, right? I just want to, I'm going to, I'm, we're going to stick to the practical of this for a minute, like it's literal. Let's just look at that because that would be, I, I just think it's fun. It may not be a literal description here, but I like to think about it. Think about this to give us a visual. What would this be? Well, if we look at the U.S. map, here's what it would look like. Do you see the foundation of this city? That is, that square is the cube, 1,500 miles. I mean, it's basically starting from south to north, I'm, I'm sorry, from east to west at the bottom. It's about 120 miles south of Mexicali, Mexico. There's no city on the map to find out where that is exactly, but 120 miles south of Mexicali, Mexico. Then you would go um, all, all the way over to Mississippi. And then going from Mississippi north, you go all the way to Ontario, Canada. And then from Ontario going back west, you go all the way to Vancouver, Canada. And then going north to south from Vancouver, you go all the way down to 120 miles you know, south of Mexicali. So we've got 26 states in this, plus some of Canada and Mexico. That's huge. And when you think about the top largest cities in the world, Delhi, Tokyo with 38 million, right? New York's like 11th with 18 million. But we've got all these cities. And all those cities combined, you've got only about half a billion people, and all of those cities would fit in this <laughs> many, many times. And that's just on the first ground level two-dimensional. But when you take this thing, thinking, seeing that it's 1,500 miles straight up as well, and the same cubic square stuff distance, it's crazy. It's crazy to think about that this is some city for billions and billions of people to easily come and gather. And that's if we just take this literal. Again, this is, this is just humans trying to understand this. 
Now look at this. As we keep on looking, there's a wall around it, so we can move on and look at Revelation 21, verses 17 and 18. Look what it says here. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which also, uh, which is also an angel's measurement, simply meaning the angel used human measurement here. The angel just gave in human measurement so that we'd understand. The wall was built of jasper, there it is again, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. It's important now as we look at this wall. What is a wall? Well, a wall is normally for protection. When you think of a city, and you think of a city wall, the wall is there to protect, right? Walls are there to either keep in or keep out, sometimes both. But I think it's interesting when you look at the dimensions that we've already seen in this astronomical height of the city itself, 15 1,500 miles high, and yet your wall, 144 cubits, you know what that is? That's about 250 feet. That's an inadequate wall for a 1,500-mile uh, high city, and you've only got a 200-foot wall. However, I, I think the physical height here is not important. I don't think that's the, the, the focus here. I think the word jasper helps us out. The wall was made of jasper. The wall is the glory of God himself. As we look at that picture of jasper that we've already seen, the glory of God permeates and radiates from this place. And so John specifically mentions the wall is the glory of God. God himself is the wall. Now think about this, these numbers again. 144. Wow, isn't that interesting? You have 12 used to, to measure the, you know, the, 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 the 12,000 that we saw earlier. And now you've got this 144, which reminds us of 144,000, the number we already saw earlier in Revelation. Again, what is 144,000? How do you equal that? Well, 12,000 times 12. There's 12 sides of the city, 12,000 times 12, 144,000. Now what we see is that this city... If it's literal, that's great. But one thing we know for sure, it is depicting all of God's people, complete. That's what the 144,000 we mentioned before. That's just a figurative number. There's not only 144,000 Christians. There's not only 144,000 of God's redeemed. Even the Jehovah's Witness had to give that up. I mean, there for many, many years, the Jehovah's Witness said there's only 144,000 of us, and then they had to open that up a little bit and say, well, okay, we're, we're wrong about it. There's only 144,000 special Christians, and the rest, they're going to be somewhere else. But we understand this to be complete, a complete picture of God's people. If we go back to Revelation 14, where we first saw that 144,000, look what it says. Verses 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 4, but listen to this. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. By the way, we, we, I want to remind us again, that the cyclical nature of Revelation, we saw over and over, the whole history repeated. So we saw the seven trumpets. We saw the seven seals. We saw the seven bowls. At the end of each of those series, at that final seventh trumpet or bowl or whatever, we saw the final judgment, right? But before that, we saw the persecution, the trials. We saw the dragon fighting the seed of the woman. We saw um, God judging the wicked. We saw uh, Christians being martyred. And it all culminated up into that sixth seal where God's judgment fell, and then the seventh where the, where the finality of the new heaven and new earth come. 
And the reason I'm saying that is here it is in, in verse 14, or I'm sorry, chapter 14, verse 1. He says, Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. This is after the judgment. Again, this is a picture of Christ returning victoriously on the mount. And who's with him? 144,000. Who are those 144,000? Those who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So there again is the antithesis of the mark of the beast, as we've seen all the way through. There's two marks. There's those who are marked as being of this world, those who follow Satan, those who are not believers, and they therefore think and live that way, and they prove it by that living that they're marked. And then the believers who live and think for the glory of God because they are regenerate. They are saved. The Spirit is living in them. And so that's who this is. It's 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Talk about John 10 commentary. What did John say? My sheep hear my voice, and, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them everlasting life. So everlasting that at the end of time, he mentions us here in Revelation, all of them are with me, he says. All 144,000, which is just a picture of a complete, perfect cube, 12,000 times 12, gathered together, hasn't lost one. That number is, is a direct number, right? It's, it's, it's a specific number showing that it's not just happenstance. God has a people, and he's not going to lose any of them, and they will all be with him on the mountain of victory in the last days. It is those who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. That's who they are. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. So that's who the 144,000 are in Scripture. No question, right? So again, I think that's what we're seeing in this truth about the wall. The wall covers 144 or the 144,000 or all of God's elect. All of God's elect are safe behind the very wall of God himself. That's the picture here in Revelation. Now, having said that, look at verses, uh, uh, Romans, I'm sorry, because this is our hope. This is what Romans 8, uh, 38 and 39 say, correct? That we're safe for all time. This is our belief as believers in Christ. For I am sure, I don't hope, I don't think, I know. I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because we're safe within the gate of God's glory itself. All 144,000 will be covered by that wall. Now, let's look at the foundations of the gates. It goes on a little bit more. Revelation 21, 19 through 21. It says this. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth Chrysopris, I think is how you do that. The 11th, Jacinth. I didn't look that one up. Jacinth. The 12th, Amethyst. 
So there you got 12 gems, right? Be beautiful things. There's a lot of colors here we could talk about. Man, you, you do know that the scholars have had heydays with these 12. They've said, okay, if the 12 foundations have the 12 names of the 12 apostles, then each of these, these gems match up with a certain apostle and his personality. So the red one would match with Peter because he was always putting his foot in his mouth. And I, I mean, are you kidding? They spent pages trying to tell us how each colored gem matches with a certain apostle and then bring personality into it. I'm like, what in the world? You ever heard of something called eisegesis? See, exegesis is what we do with Scripture. We exegete the Scripture. We read it, and we take the truth from the Scripture. The Scripture itself has the truth. We simply mine it and say, this is what it says. Eisegesis is you bring your truth and put into the Scriptures, and that's what a lot of guys do. We can't do that. We've got to be careful here, so I'm not going to over-interpret this. It's beautiful, for one thing. All of these colors, all of the brilliance, we've already seen that that is a picture of the glory of God. So that's the main picture of these different gems and, and colors. The very colors, again, display the glory of God. J. Ramsey Michaels puts it like this. He says, these varied expressions all make the point that the city radiates through and through with the glory and purity of God who made it and adorned it as the place for God and humans to dwell together in a world made new. So that's, again, what John's trying to show us. Here's a new world that I can't even begin to describe. It radiates, and even that term could show this idea of it, it's, it's living, it's vibrating with color and sound, and we can't, have, can't even imagine it. It's alive with the very glory of God. Now here we move to the gates. So the foundations are just made of beautiful gems and stones, shining and radiating the glory of God, again, representing the 12 apostles. But the gates... I love this. Look at this. The gates. They're one solid pearl. Did, did we catch that? It says, and the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. That's a big pearl. I mean, that would be something that we would call a pearl of great price, Right? I believe that's the symbolism here. I believe that's the pointing. That's the truth. Back to what we've already said. Who is the gate to the Father? What is the entrance into heaven? It is Christ. What is the great parable that Jesus told about the man who found the pearl of great price and he sold everything he had to buy it? He went and got rid of everything he had in order just to have that pearl of great price. Jesus himself is that pearl of great price. He's telling us, look, it's worth losing everything in this world to find me. I'm the pearl of great price. And here in that final city and those gates that surround that city, who is it that is the entryway? It's Christ, always Christ. He's the pearl of great price. Now look at the final description here in verses 22 through 27 of what's, what's happening here in this city in the future that we're all going to be a part of by the grace of God. Verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Mm. No temple in the city. So, there are those who would tie these verses to a millennial reign, and part of that strange connection is that there's a, a temple 
that they mentioned, like the temple has to be reunited, the, the sacrifices have started again. But this was pretty plain. In this new reigning, this, this new city, there is no temple. Why? Because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. So what is the temple on earth? What was the point? So that man could worship God. It was our access to God. He met us in the temple. He was in the Holy of Holies, though, and there was the great curtain between. So we had to have a mediator, the priest, who would offer sacrifices to God in the temple. But, but that was the place. People came and prayed at the temple. That's where God met with him. His Shekinah glory dwelt in the temple. Do you not see the significance here? The glory is this. Once we are in, through Christ, in this new heaven, new earth, this new city, we need no temple to worship God. We are the temple. He is the temple. We are all together as one, dwelling in him, he in us. That's, what he, that's that language he kept using. You will be my people. I will be your God. I will dwell with you, you with me. It's glorious. We don't even understand that. We don't understand that. It's so significant, folks, that so much has to happen. We have to be sanctified, which God's grace is working on us now. We're not ready for this. We couldn't be in the presence of this city right now. We couldn't be in the presence of God in these bodies. We would be destroyed. But what is God doing by his grace? He justified us, and he is faithful to sanctify us. So everything in this life that we're going through now, we need to have an eye on heaven because we're being prepared for that by his grace. And one day we would be glorified, a brand new body completely made for this kind of worship in the very presence of God we can't even understand it. We can't understand the fulfillment of that. The, the ecstasy in that fulfillment of receiving glory directly from God and us giving him glory. It's just, we can't understand it. But it will make every suffering, Paul says, of this life, every disappointment, every failure, every pain, like nothing. I mean, we won't even remember. It won't even be worth comparing, Paul said, to the glory that will be revealed in us. When will that be revealed? As we are in the very presence of God's glory that can't even be expressed with human language of what that's like. Radiating into us in this new city. Joy unspeakable. Pleasure forevermore, God says. There is pleasure forevermore at God's right hand, the psalmist said. This is what he's looking forward to. Let me just read the rest of this verse. I didn't get very far, did I? I love this, though. And I, I he goes on to say, and the city has no need of sun or moon or, 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 or to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. <laughs> and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk. So again, we've got this supernatural thing going on. There's no more day or night. There is no more night. Endless day. It's the glory of God, the glory of the Lamb, illuminating everything. But look at this. By its light, the nations walk. The nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. They will bring into, the, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, we've covered this 
already in the last couple of weeks in Revelation. Several occasions, John has been adamant about bringing up the fact that those who are not in the book of life will be cast into the lake of fire. That's already happened at this point. So what is this? Some have said, well, this means evidently that there's possibility for wickedness. If it says nothing unclean could ever enter in, no, it's simply stating the fact that it's impossible at this point in history for any uncleanness to enter in because it's already been judged and gone and only those whose names were written in the book of life are able to be there and they are all made pure and spotless by the blood of the lamb but think about this for a minute again here goes my imagination a, a little bit here josh but it's here it's saying it whatever is happening in this new world for some reason, God, he didn't have to say this here, but he's talking about nations. Will there be nations in heaven? Maybe. Again, I don't want to be dogmatic here. Will there be kings and ruling? There may be, because what did Jesus say? If you've been, Parables he told about the, the, the life to come, he would use these analogies of the faithful servant, those who were faithful. When the master left, when he returned, he rewarded them. And he would say things like, you've been faithful over a few things, I'm going to make you ruler over many. Again, I think in a world where God has made us to be productive and creative and have a, a, a responsibility, in a sense, to give him glory, that we are tasked with that. That's why we were made in the first place. I think in heaven he has created things for us to do. And here's the kicker. You're saying, well, wait a minute, that's, that's scary. Now you got me scared because that's what I hate about this life. I'm, I'm, it's like a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I'm trying to get promoted. I'm trying to get that promotion. I'm trying to, get this, I'm trying to run for office. Are there going to be elections in heaven? Man, that's not going to be heaven if there's elections. Well, here's the difference, folks. Here's, it's not going to be like this world, and yet it's going to be like this world. So I think, again, this is the important thing we've got to understand about heaven. It's not just this, again, floating around in nothingness. There's a purpose, there's order, there's function, and there's glory, and there's holiness, and there's perfection. So get this, remember, we've got to tie that idea with what we've already seen about the no mores of heaven. There's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more death. Along with those no mores would go all of the sin that's been cast into the sea. There's no more jealousy, there's no more envy. There's no more gossip, no more anger, no more murder, no more, no more cutthroat. We can't even comprehend it, folks. I, I'm having a hard time thinking how I'm going to tell you this next sentence. We will never be jealous of somebody else getting a position. We will only show joy and graciousness to them. We will gladly rejoice with everyone, and everyone will gladly rejoice with us. We can't even fathom a world like that of perfect peace and harmony and joy. Sounds like a strange utopia-type dystopia movie, right? <laughs> Where it ends bad. Everybody's walking around, you know, brainwashed, right? I love you, I love you. But this is not what contrives from the minds of men. This is God himself who made us and can remake us perfect. Amen. Eddie likes it. I hope you understand. So, so again, I, I don't I know how it's going to work, but there are kingdoms and nations coming into this great temple, this great city that, that we saw, and they're bringing the glory. They're bringing their, their best. Why? Because God is worthy of all praise. And we love it. We all love it. We all, that's our purpose for being creative and being productive. And all the works of our hands at that time are for the glory of our Father in heaven. And he 
radiates with joy. And his glory continues to fill that place, that city. And it's never ending, folks. But it's exciting. I, again, I think that, that we should pray that God give us hearts that long for heaven. Something in us that pulls us forward out of this dying world, out of this broken, sad world. Let us be like Abraham, who looks forward. He looks beyond all of the pain to a city with foundations whose builder and designer is God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for hope and light and joy that go beyond this world. Give us that grace to believe your word by faith, knowing that everything we've read here is our own story yet to come. So, Father, again, we thank you for, above all else, the gate, the door, the way, the truth, the life, Jesus Christ. We don't deserve this. We're not worthy of this. And yet, because of Christ, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Because of that, we have access, by faith, into this wonderful new life. May you give us joy unspeakable, now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.